0: Hi, Shannon Waller here, and welcome to Inside Strategic Coach with Dan Sullivan. Dan, you said something in a workshop the other day, and I thought to myself, hmm, I want to interview you on this (laughs) for the next Inside Strategic Coach podcast. And you talked about entrepreneurial first principles Mm -hmm. and three particular P's that I found fascinating, and I knew immediately I wanted to know a lot more about and to have this conversation with you. So what are the first principles and the three Ps?
1: Well, I'll spend about two minutes on each of the Ps, and they build on each other. So I'll start with number one and then build number two on it, and then I'll build number three. But number one is the very, very essence and where everything starts in any kind of marketplace. Any human activity, anything related to a product or a service or an experience relates what's called the pricing mechanism of the marketplace. And that is that things in the marketplace are worth what people are willing to pay for it. So there is no objective value of anything in the marketplace. It's just how people, whether they feel like paying the price or not paying the price. So this is really harsh for a lot of people. You mean I would get educated and I would go through schooling the best undergraduate school, and I would get an advanced degree, and I would go out there, and they wouldn't offer me more than $40,000. And I said, yeah, yeah. And they'd offer a baseball player $5 million, and they don't have any of my education or credentials. I said, yeah, that's how it works. Even entrepreneurs get their nose out of joint about this oftentimes related to sports or corporate CEOs or celebrities. And I remember a baseball player had signed a contract, I think it was seven years, for something like $250 million. And the guy says, there's just no baseball player that's worth $250 million. I mean, it's just not possible. They're not worth it. I said, well, of course they are. And he says, well, how can you say that? And I said, somebody wrote him the check. (laughs) And I said, from their standpoint, they wrote a check that said, I think this individual's having him for seven years and having him do what he does for the next seven years is worth $250 million. So that's the pricing mechanism of the marketplace. If he came to you, you would say, well, I don't think you're worth more than a million a year. And if that's the only opportunity he had, well, then that's what he's worth. And it really comes that somehow there's an inherent objective value in a product, a service, an experience, a skill, a capability that's built in, and it's an injustice that it should be paid for less. It has a lot to do with people who are in the helping professions, teachers, nurses, doctors, and they don't get paid. And I said, well, they get paid exactly what people think that they're worth. And there are superstars in each of these professions that get paid a lot more because they have a perceived value. People writing the checks say, well, I think this person's worth a lot more than that person right there. So there's kind of an unpredictability about it, because what something may be worth this month a year from now in this month it may not be worth that the other thing is that factors can change the value of things and therefore the price either goes up or the price goes down and the other thing there's kind of a perceived injustice that if i put in all this work and, you know, I'm doing good for humanity. I should be worth more. And I said, well, you know, what people are willing to pay for things might include the factor that this is good for humanity. So, therefore, you have philanthropists who are ready to write big checks for particular causes. Well, you know, whatever check they write, um, that's the pricing mechanism of the marketplace, regardless of what marketplace it is, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: You've talked about this before. It's Value is in the eye of the buyer. Yeah, totally. (laughs) In the eye of the beholder. And, you know, because I work with team members a lot, entrepreneurial team members, the whole thing is like, well, I put in all the time and effort. But then if you didn't get the results, it doesn't actually matter. So, and this was a shift that I had Mm -hmm. to make after you pointed this out, not to me directly, but several times I'm like, hmm, but something really interesting happens when you actually get it and you accept it. Oh yeah. And that is all of a sudden you start paying. Just as we talked about in a recent podcast when you talked about, you know, I'm number 21, when you meet someone, you're so focused on where are they now? Not where should they be? Where do you wish they would be? Where are they now and how can I be useful to them?
1: And what do they think that's worth? And what I they mean, think if it's you're worth? offering your services, what do they think? So, quite frankly, what it says is that the buyer is always right. Mm-hmm. You know, whoever the buyer is, in a marketplace transaction the buyer is always right and you can say he's an idiot he's a fool and everything else doesn't matter because he's the check writer so i i have an attitude uh, your ideas are worth what check writers think they're worth okay artists have a hard time with this you know classic you know the neglected underappreciated artist no he wasn't neglected or Nobody thought he was worth anything. <laughs> yeah. So that's number one. Number two is profit and loss, that you can think you're doing really great as an entrepreneur, but every 30 days, there's kind of a decision on the scorecard that says, nope, that was a bad month. No, no, but I did great things. I opened up great possibilities. Yeah, but your banker wouldn't agree with that. Your banker would say, no, that was a bad month. That was a loss month and everything else. Yes, but you're not appreciating the intrinsic value of what I'm doing, and that's true. They're not appreciating (laughs) it because, as far as they're concerned, there is no such thing as intrinsic value. There's only subjective value, and it's worth, to me, what it is. And this is why people move around, you know, from location to location, or, you know, they even move large distances, or they shift situations, or they shift their approach. They want to find to get to the place where they can get the biggest check based, you know, they have their own sense of their own worth, and they want that reflected. So if you're not getting it here, you have to move someplace else i grew up in a small town in ohio there's no possibility of a strategic coach making a living in <laughs> in my hometown you know what i do for a living it doesn't even show up as a concept so i had to move someplace else and specifically i had to move to a big growing city you know, a big growing city where coaching would be seen as a real asset by people who had big goals.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. And Dan, what's the third piece?
1: The third one is protection of personal property. And what I mean by that is at the end of an entrepreneur's efforts of testing themselves against the pricing mechanism of the marketplace, okay, and being 100% willing to take whatever the verdict is, And then operating by profit or loss, the only good month is a profitable month, you know, and you can't fool yourself about transactions. If you have 20 transactions and you had a loss on every one of the transactions, you are experiencing no profit, Mm -hmm. okay? And being willing to subject yourself without any alternative, that these are the arbiters of whether I'm doing a good job or not. You will build property. Part of that is revenues and actual profits. You will have profits, but you will create things which are yours and is protected by intellectual property laws. You will buy things that are yours. And without that protection of profit as your personal property, if you're not guaranteed that, that it could be taken away, you could put in lawn effort, do a wonderful job, and it could be taken away from you, then there's no incentive to actually start with the pricing mechanism. You'll try to get out and get favored and get kickbacks. If you don't obey the three Ps, it encourages theft. It encourages corruption. So the very essence of our world, where it works, Is in those places in those situations which most exclusively operate by the three Ps.
0: Mm, Fascinating! I love how we've been talking about kind of like specific entrepreneurs here for the entrepreneurs who do really accept this, even though there might be frustration somewhere, like, how come they aren't getting my value, versus ones who do not? You know, yes, it can lead to corruption, but I'm almost picturing two different entrepreneurs, one who completely buys into the three Ps and the first principles, and one who does not. So, can you contrast their success and experience for me?
1: Yeah, well, you get this a lot in the technology world where you see people selling the future okay they're selling something that seems very very exciting for the future and they can get a lot of money in because people would like to be part of a project that would grow 10 times or 20 times in the future and it would be reflected in their profits in other words they invest so much and they get this profit out of it but in fact They kind of never pay off, and then they, for some reason or other, they'll say, well, we used up all the money you gave us for costs, and we're not there right now. And then they'll sell it to someone, then they'll get some money from that. But nowhere along are they subjecting themselves to the pricing mechanism because there's nothing to price in the marketplace except their offer of a better future. So the thing is that the more you get away from the present in selling something the more vague and unaccountable the value of what you're creating and you know we see examples of that of people who you know get hundreds of millions of dollars for a new idea that does not yet exist and then they make all sorts of stories up about why it's not working but meanwhile they've got the benefit of the $300 $300 million, and then the stock market might put a value on it, and then they, they have stocks and they're borrowing against their stocks and they're cashing out on their stocks. But there's no value creation. Nothing has been created. So they've taken themselves away from the pricing mechanism, of the marketplace as it relates to something tangible actually being created that's useful to the person who's putting the money up that's useful to the person who's making the promise but it's not useful to the person who's putting up the money you know except as possibly tax write offs or something like that but then what you're doing is you're you're getting the benefit of other people's money which is tax money There is no money except real money. There's no government money or anything like that. There's only money. And they're not subjecting themselves to profit or loss, you know. They're saying, yeah, but we're just in the middle of the project yet. So, yeah, we're running at a deficit, but that doesn't matter because we're transforming the planet. And then the third thing is they're not actually creating any property which has any value So there's a lot of selling of dreams. I mean, gambling casinos live on this principle. (laughs) I mean, what are they selling in a gambling? They're not selling fun because I've never been in a gambling casino where anybody was happy. Yes, you've lost 15 times in a row, but Number 16 is yours and they're selling number 16 and people have already spent an enormous amount of money losing to get to the possibility of number 16. So you want to bring it close to right now in the present, pricing mechanism of the marketplace. Do I make a profit or loss and am I creating something that's actually property that's mine that can be protected in the future? You can take any business and strategic coach, any one of our entrepreneurs, and say, are you willing just to accept the pricing mechanism of the marketplace? Are you willing just to be judged by check writers? Are you willing to be just judged by scorekeepers who know a difference between a profit and a loss? And are you willing to constantly strive to create something that has permanent value in the form of personal property? You know, I had harsh periods and, you know, long stretches of time. I went bankrupt twice. Why did I go bankrupt twice? Because I didn't respect the pricing mechanism of the marketplace. I didn't respect profit and loss. And I didn't respect the necessity of creating personal property.
0: Mm -hmm. Really interesting. So you've been on the other side of that. Oh, yeah. And if someone were to take away. I've been
1: harshly judged.
0: Yeah, (laughs) And you've learned from it. a great value. So the other thing about these, these are also incredibly incentivizing factors. Mm -hmm. And so talk about systems, because there's a a micro and a macro version of this, in terms of a system that really operates on these principles and what's possible for the human beings in it versus those systems that do not.
1: The thing is that the more—and I'll give an example of the transformation of Israel— That happened as a result of something that happened during an eight-year period from 1989 to roughly 1996. A population of highly educated Russians who were Jews, at least that was the consideration on the part of the Soviet thinks that these were Jewish people. They were given an opportunity to emigrate to Israel. And it was equal to one-tenth of the Israeli population. So suddenly, I mean, you can imagine the United States is about 330 million now. you Suddenly, during an eight-year period, you get 33 million highly educated individuals, highly trained individuals, engineers, technicians, scientists, mathematicians, and musicians, and every other kind of skill, and suddenly they move into the United States. What kind of impact would this have on the economy? In other words, they weren't going to be requiring welfare at all. When they came in, they were going to hit the ground running. And what the Israelis basically said, said the rule here is that you work real hard and make a lot of money. Basically that's what the Israeli officials says, come in, don't make any trouble, work really, really hard, use your skills benefit the country, build a lot of new things, make a lot of money. And that's all we have to do. That's all you have to do. Well, they lived in a system for all their lives where the state determined what things would cost, okay? So no pricing mechanism in the marketplace. Whether you did well or not, depended upon the favor that you had with Soviet bureaucratic authorities, there was no profit or loss. The Soviet government itself did not know whether it was profit or loss, because how could they? Nobody in the system actually operated on profit or loss. And the third thing is virtually no personal property. So they were missing the three immediate checkpoints on daily life about whether things were moving in a good direction for each individual, then for groups of individuals, and then for the whole society. And I think that the U.S. is probably the finest at this because there's so many independent sensors about pricing, independent censors about profit and loss, and really quite extraordinary protections for personal property. Every year they take a poll of anybody thinking of emigrating in the world, not talking about the United States. If they could go where they wanted to go and really grow their life, 70% of all immigrants say they'd like to move to the United States. They don't. I mean, the U.S. takes in more immigrants every year than any other country and always has for a long period of time. But the reason is the country where these three rules most operate on a day-to-day basis on the individual level is the U.S. anywhere in the world.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and that's why there's so many Success stories, and mm-hmm. and often in one generation. It's not familial wealth that's been passed down. It's someone creating an idea that was useful. They tested against the marketplace. It proved valuable. People were willing to pay them money for it, and they kept doing that. So they used their profits quite often reinvesting and then created some pretty powerful intellectual capital. I mean, the U.S. is full of stories like yeah. that.
1: Well, here's the thing, because I went bankrupt twice in Canada, it was five years, you know, because I went bankrupt, they took my credit cards. I didn't take my credit cards, they politely asked me to hand over my credit cards. <laughs> and uh, it was five years, you know, I don't know what the time period is right now, but it was five years before I could get another credit card. Okay. In America, generally, if you go bankrupt on Monday, they'll send you three more credit cards on Friday. <laughs> and the reason is because they know that you failed honestly. Mm. And your ability to succeed, honestly, is more of a reality than it is anywhere else. Yeah, you failed, but you failed according to honest standards. So we expect you to get back on your feet, honestly. Did you learn enough from the failure to know how to use the three Ps to actually get back on your feet? (laughs) And my feeling is that's what makes it such an extraordinary place.
0: That's amazing. Last thing I want to touch on, Dan, is how can the person who's listening to this take action on it or really take a look at their thinking, take a look at their mindset, see how in alignment it is with the first principles. How can people take action on this?
1: Yeah, well, the biggest thing is to increase your value in the marketplace, stop having the emphasis on you and have the emphasis on your potential customers and find out what would increase your value in relationship them actually achieving their goals and that's how you can become real valuable i'm up about 800 times on my daily value when i first started coaching as a one-on-one coach to my coach now within the framework of our entire program and all of our workshop programs so my price my value is about 800 times what it was in 1982 and it was totally true what I was worth in 1982, and it's totally true what I'm worth today. I have no argument with either. And the other thing is that once Babs took over the finances of the company, we started seeing profit and profit and profit and profit. So I I needed some remedial help there, and I'm tightly supervised about my appreciation for profit and loss. And the third thing is that we have created an enormous amount of Intellectual capital, financial capital, organizational capital, reputation capital, and actually physical property. And it's all extraordinarily well protected. And the thing is that when you respect the rules of success right from the beginning, even when you're not successful then when you get really, really successful, you don't become arrogant about it because you know you were just following the rules and if anybody followed the rules the way you did, they would also become as successful as you are.
0: I really love that. And for me, as you were talking, like, oh, this is having a no entitlement attitude. Yeah,
1: there is no entitlement, but there is total transparency and there's total accountability. And if you're not succeeding, the problem is not anything outside of yourself. You're just not approaching the game properly. These are the first three principles, first principles of all entrepreneurial success. I love it. That's honest success.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you, Dan.
1: Thank you.